Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, 19 to 26. Verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we now turn our attention to your word, we give you thanks, Lord, for giving it to us. We give you thanks for the scriptures that you inspired to be light for us in darkness. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand as we meditate on this passage together. Help us to reflect upon our own lives and our own experience. Help us to see, Lord, what it is that you want us to see, the thing that will truly change our lives, Lord. Because as we sang in that last song, we, we truly do want to honor you in all that we do, Lord, because of what you've done for us. So please instruct us and teach us, Lord, and thank you for the great and awesome privilege it is to know you and what an awesome holy thing it is to gather together with others who know you too. Be honored, Lord, we pray, today and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a quote from an old Puritan named Walter Marshall. He's not one of the well-known Puritans, but he wrote a famous book in 1692 called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. It's a famous book on sanctification. And he begins the book by saying this, and I quote, that you may not stumble at the threshold of a religious life by this common oversight, I shall endeavor to make you sensible that it is not enough for you to know the matter and reason of your duty, but that you are also to learn the powerful and effectual means of performance before you can successfully apply yourselves to immediate practice. Now, how many understood what he just said? <laughs> yeah, it's a Puritan quote. That's the way they talk. Let me read that again. That you may not stumble at the threshold of a religious life. Now, it's about sanctification. So what he's talking about is living the Christian life. When he says a religious life, he means how you live your life in, an, in a way that honors God. People stumble at the beginning is what he's saying. They stumble at the beginning. And that you may not stumble at the beginning of that, 
by a common oversight, and here's the common oversight, I'll make you sensible of this. It's not enough for you to know the matter and the reason of your duty, the matter and your reason, that is, what you're supposed to do and why you're supposed to do it. That's not enough. But you must also learn the powerful and effectual means of performance. That is, you need to also learn how to do it before you can successfully apply yourself to immediate practice. So in simple English, it's not enough to know what you should do, and it's not enough to know why you should do it. You also need to know how to do it. True? In sports, that's a true principle as well, right? Take football, for example, since football is on many people's minds today. Um, it's not enough to know what to do in football, right? So what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take that ball and take it down the field and put it onto, past the touchdown line, and that way you get a touchdown. It's not enough to know what you should do and also why you should do it. Well, you should do that because if you do that, you'll win the game. And if you do that, you'll make your fans happy and you'll make your coach happy, and if you do that, you'll get paid. And if you do that, you'll help that poor man who's gambling all of his money on the game so he can, po- so he can pay for that surgery that his child needs. See, you can have all sorts of really good reasons to do it. I know all the right reasons to take that ball down the field. I know what I'm supposed to do. But if that guy doesn't know how to do it, then he's going to fail, right? And it's the same with sanctification and living the Christian life. And I think this is a great point that Walter Marshall observes is that there's a lot of people who stumble when they want to live a Christian life. They know what they're supposed to do. They know why they're supposed to do it, but they stumble because they don't understand how they are supposed to do it. Anyone have any experience with that? Yeah, exactly. Paul himself had bitter experience with that. You can read about it in Romans chapter 7. Paul tells us his bitter experience of knowing what he should do and not being able to do it, even though he knows why he should do it and why it's a good thing to do. But his way of doing it was wrong. It didn't work. And Paul learned by bitter experience that rules and law cannot make you a better person. And seeking to do the right thing by the means of law doesn't make you better, but actually, as Paul experienced, and I think as many of us have experienced, it actually makes you worse. And it's for this reason that the law cannot sanctify you, or that is not the way for you to be sanctified. And by the law, we mean it's telling you to do it or else, and it's putting it all upon you and your own efforts and your own strengths. And you seek to do the right thing, and you find that there's a law within you, Paul says, another law within you, another principle, that when the commandment comes, says you shall not do that, boy, you just suddenly want to do that. And all of a sudden, you find yourself getting worse and worse. It's for this reason that the law can't justify. It can only tell you what to do, but it cannot justify you. And this is why our only hope of justification, our only hope of being saved, is not through obedience to the law. It's not through pulling up our bootstraps and saying, I'm going to do this thing, the laws, I know what I'm supposed to do, I know why I'm going to do it, I'm just going to go do it. That is not the way to be righteous before God. Paul says no one will be righteous before God through their own efforts by the law. And this is the only hope that we have is to give up, to realize you can't do it, and to put your 
faith and your hope in Jesus and trust in him for what he has done for you. He takes your sins. He takes your unrighteousness. He pays the penalty for them. He removes your sins as far as the east is from the west and you receive a righteousness from God that isn't your own working. This is how we're justified. But Paul in this, in this chapter in Galatians is showing us more now than just being justified. He's explained that in the previous part of Galatians. He's explained how the law doesn't make us righteous and we can only be righteous through faith in Christ alone. But now he's showing us in chapter 5 that righteousness through faith in Christ opens up new possibilities for our lives, opens up new possibilities for how we can live our lives now that we are justified. And Paul's saying, look, the, the whole thing, I'm not telling you that all that there is to be said is that you're, you, you can't keep the law, you're an unrighteous sinner, you're justified through faith, and for the rest of your lives, there's just, that's, that's all there is to be said. You're, you're just going to always live a defeated life, and you're justified, and you're going to be saved through faith, and don't expect any help or transformation in the Christian life or the Christian walk. What he's telling us here is that justification through faith opens up a new way for us to live, and we don't have to live a defeated life. So we're not only saved to carry on as we've always carried on, but God saved us and intends us to be different, and we can be different now through the gospel. Would you agree that the New Testament says that, essentially, that that the gospel doesn't only save you, but it gives you the opportunity to be transformed as well, right? We agree? It's not just you're always going to be corrupt, but you'll go to heaven through faith. No, you can be transformed. And the key, Paul tells us, is this new way to walk, something we could not do before, didn't exist before we had faith in Christ. And this is what, he, what we talked about last week, walking by the Spirit. In verse 16, walking by the Spirit. This is something that is new to us only because of the gospel and salvation through faith in Christ. Didn't exist before. By way of a brief summary from last week, walking by the Spirit means setting our minds on the things of the Spirit as opposed to setting our minds on the things of the flesh. There are now, brothers and sisters, new things that we can set our minds on. Amen? There's new things we can set our minds on that we couldn't set our minds on before we believed the gospel. Before we understood Christ, before we understood salvation, the only things we could set our minds on were the things of the flesh. The only things we knew is that, you know, God has a law and a standard and I better do it or else. That's all we could think. We didn't know anything about his grace or his amazing love as we were singing about. That stuff was not, we, we didn't know it. It was, it was not on it was not able to be in our mind. But now there's new things we can set our minds on. As we read in Colossians 3 last week, the things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came into the world, died for our sins, was buried, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now he is at the right hand of the Father representing us. And Paul says, put your mind up there because that's really where you are actually. That's really where your true existence is. That's really where your true life is. That's really what God thinks about you. Because you've been united to Christ and your life, your old life apart from Christ is gone. I know it doesn't look like it, but it is. And the way God really sees you now, dear Christian, is in Christ, totally righteous, totally blameless, totally accepted, totally delighting God, 
at the right hand of the Father, that's really your new life. You are a new creation. The old creation, the creation that you see every day with your eyes, that's not your real identity. You're a new creation in Christ. And by having this mindset, we create new desires that neutralize the desires that come from the old mindset of the old creation, of our old life. And last week, we talked about how this walking by the Spirit is the core prescription, the fundamental command for us as Christians to live the Christian life. This is the command that's first, that undergirds everything else, and that affects everything else. Walking by the Spirit. If you don't walk by the Spirit, the Christian life can't happen. But I want to say this also this morning, that even though walking by the Spirit is the foundational and core principle of the Christian life, it isn't the only exhortation and commandment in the New Testament. It's not the only thing that the apostles say that we as Christians should do. True? I mean, if, if walking in the Spirit was the only thing that the, New, that the apostles had to say, then we wouldn't have sections in the New Testament that give us any direction for our Christian lives as well. And you know that in the epistles, there's often sections where it says, you know, put off lying, put on kindness, forgive people just as God has forgiven you. There's all sorts of other directions as well. So I don't want to give the impression that this is the only thing that is said in the New Testament for us to do. Otherwise, the other things wouldn't be there. And I don't want someone saying, well, Eli told me that all I need to do is put my mind on things above. And if I put my mind on things above and set my mind on things above, then I would be sanctified. And you're going to find, if you think that, that it's not going to work, and then you'll start blaming uh, the New Testament, and you'll blame me and say, he said it would work if I just set my minds on things above, and that's it. That's the only thing I ever considered. But that won't work. There are lots of other things for us to consider. There's lots of other things for us to do. You and I must face this life like everybody else and learn the right way to, to behave and the wrong way to behave in particular situations that we will encounter. But the difference is this, that we have the mindset as Christians to face those situations. We have a new mindset that is different than the mindset of non-Christians that enables us to face and overcome any difficult situation. In fact, walking by the Spirit provides the only mindset which makes it possible for us to truly live an ethical life. It gives us the necessary peace, the necessary joy, the necessary love, desires, motivation, hope, freedom, self-control needed to walk the walk that is before us. So it's this mindset that is foundational for us and enables us to face all those other situational exhortations. So walking by the Spirit remains the key to the Christian life, the thing without which the Christian life will not work. And I hope that we'll see that from now on, that walking by the Spirit is the first thing, it's the foundational thing that undergirds everything else. So this morning now, though, we turn to, we turn to the passage that we read, and we turn from the root to the fruit, or maybe more accurately, 
we turn from two very different roots to two very different collections of fruits. And I'd like to talk about three things in this passage that we read this morning. First of all, and this will take up most of our time, I'd like to talk about the nature of these roots to the fruits. The nature of the roots to the fruits. Secondly, we're going to talk about Paul's sober pronouncement in verse 21. His sober pronouncement in verse 21 about those, not in, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then lastly, we'll conclude and close with Paul's concluding encouragement and exhortation in verse 24 and 25. So first of all, the nature of the roots to their fruits. And as I said, there's two very different roots in this, in this section and two very different collections of fruits. On the one hand, we have walking by the Spirit. That is one root. And on the other hand, we have walking not by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. And these two different roots or these two different mindsets produce a different collections of fruits. And we see in this section that we read, there's two lists the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh is that which is produced by walking in the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit is that which is produced by walking by the Spirit. And, there's a, and I'll say two things about this. First of all, there's a cause and effect relationship. The scholar Walter Russell comments on this, that the basic argument of Paul's here is a causal one that argues from obvious effects to the causes that created them. Causal argument that argues from the obvious effects from the causes that created them. And so it might be profitable for us, it might be a profitable exercise for us to start with the fruit and then ask ourselves, what creates this? Start with the fruit and ask ourselves, what creates this? And you can take any, any number of them or any one of them and I want to ask you, doesn't it, is, not, is it not true that if you take anything from these lists that you can trace the cause back to your mind or your mindset? So let's look at some of these. Idolatry. One of the things in this list of works of the flesh is idolatry, the worshiping of other gods, not, not worshiping the one true God. Now, what is the cause of that? Is it, not, is it not caused by failing to see the value and the worthiness and the beauty of God? Is that not why people turn to idols? Because they do not see the value and the worthiness and the beauty of God. When you see who God is, when you set your mind on the truth of who God is, that, he's, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he created you, that he redeemed you, and you see that, you cannot but help worship God and see that he's worthy of your worship. It's failing to see him that you turn to idols. So it comes back to your mind. It comes back to you, to you not seeing the truth. Or take jealousy. One of the things on this list. Is not jealousy rooted in the cause of not seeing the value of another person and thinking too highly of yourself? Why do we get jealous about other people? Because we're thinking too highly of ourselves. We're still thinking in the old creation. Well, he, he doesn't deserve that. I deserve that. Or I really hate that guy because of what he did to me. You're not seeing the truth that 
First of all, both of you don't deserve anything. And second of all, that God loves you both by grace, unconditionally. And you're complete in, in the things that God has done for you. You don't need what that other person has. And you should be glad that God has graciously given that other person something. Because God's not giving it to him based upon his worthiness or his deserts, but based upon his grace. So again, if you trace this back, it comes back to how you think. And the same is true with adultery or drunkenness. You're filling an emptiness that's caused by not seeing the truth that gives you joy, that gives you satisfaction, that shows you hope. People, take, people do these things to basically medicate themselves because they're not rejoicing in the truth. So it can be traced back to the mind. Or let's take some of the more positive ones. Love. Where does love come from? In your own experience. And maybe you can relate to the negative ones. Yeah, in my own experience, when I'm jealous and when I'm committing adultery and when I'm uh, not worshiping God, it's because of my lousy mindset. But is it not true also in our own experiences that when we are filled with love, let's take love for God, let's take love for others. Is it not true because in our minds we're seeing that we are loved by God. I mean, where does love come from for you? But when you see how God has loved you and what he's done for you, and you fill your mind with what he has done for you and how he cares for you, then you cannot but love God in return. And by loving God, you also love others as well, because you know God loves others as well. You see that God loves them. You see that they're also valuable to God. And so it comes from your mind. Or patience, for example, comes from seeing your completeness in Christ, that this um, hang-up is not the end of the world. You having to wait a little while is, is okay because God waited for you, and God was patient with you, and all is not lost because God has made you complete in Christ. And also seeing that God is in control. It's when, when I forget that God is in control that I am impatient. I, I struggle with impatience, actually. That's one thing I struggle with. And it's because I'm forgetting that God is, is in control. That this situation, he's allowing, and he loves me, and he's in control, and I'm, I'm complete in him. It's, I'm not thinking about that. All I'm thinking about is, What's going on here? Why are you doing this? This is going to, you know, ruin our evening or whatever, you know. Where's my mind? So I hope that we can attest and we can agree that from personal experience that there is a causal relationship with how we are walking or how, where our mindset is and the, and the fruits that is produced. Even this week, I had a major failing. I was upset with another brother and it was because of my failing to put my mind on uh, the things above. And I was thinking in terms of the old creation. But as we walk by the Spirit, brothers and sisters, we'll be prepared to face the difficulties and responsibilities of the day. Do you believe that's true? I do. I was once at um, a religious conference, and um, I was sitting there with a friend of mine, and the person in this conference was talking about this very passage, the fruit of the Spirit. And he was basically saying that if you want the Spirit to be with you, you need to exercise self-control. 
That's what this person was saying. The whole message was, if you want the Spirit to be with you, you need to be self-controlled. If you're not self-controlled, the Spirit won't be there. Because the moment you're not self-controlled, the Spirit's not with you. And I pointed out to my friend that, wait, doesn't the passage say that if you want self-control, the Spirit needs to be with you? Isn't it the other way around? And so the key to the Christian life here is seeing there's a causal relationship between the fruit of the Spirit and how we're walking or where our mindset is. So, no, even though most religious people think when you get up in the morning, be self-controlled if you want the Spirit to be with you, it's the other way here, Paul is saying, that if you want the fruit of the Spirit, the key is for you to walk in the Spirit and put your mind on the things above. You don't just go directly at the fruit. You go through this causal uh, path, and it starts in our minds. The second thing I'd like to observe about the nature of the roots to the fruits is, is something that has been rightly observed by commentators, and that is this very interesting thing, that the overwhelming focus here for Paul in these two lists is on relationship and community vices and virtues. The overwhelming focus here for Paul is on relationship and community. That is, Paul's concern is on how walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh will affect community and will affect your relationships with other people. If you look at the works of the flesh, and if you look at the fruit of the Spirit, the majority of them are dealing with our relationships with other people. There's a few, there's a few things in there that you could maybe argue are sort of individualistic, but you could also argue, no, this is basically all about our relationship to others and how we relate in community. This is not just a list of self-improvement. This isn't just an individualistic um, way to improve your own life in a, in a closet. This is Paul talking about how your mindset will affect your relationships with others. It's interesting that in, the ancient, in ancient literature, there's lots of virtue lists and vice lists like this. In ancient literature, other authors would also write out all sorts of virtue lists and vice lists. But what makes this one unique is that it's, it's about relationship with others, where the other ones is more about your own individual progress, your own individual um, success. And so we see here that God's law, actually this is, this is in keeping with the fact, and I don't know if you've noticed this in the law of Moses, but the law of Moses is primarily about relationships with other people. Notice in verse 14, Paul says that the whole law is fulfilled in what commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul basically is saying, and Jesus also pointed this out, that morality to God, brothers and sisters, righteousness to God, an ethical life to God, is, is, is ultimately about how we relate to other people. Do you think about morality and, and the ethical life as this individualistic thing, where I don't commit certain sins that will make me look bad to God? Or do you see it as, how do I relate to my community and to the neighbor next to me? Because that's what morality is all about. No one can live an ethical life locked in a closet, trying to be holy, trying to be pure. It's a sad thing because I think a lot of religious people think that way. And a lot, for a lot of religious people, morality is so self-focused. It's just on my own self becoming a better person kind of in a vacuum. But for God, it's all about how we relate to other people. 
And John Calvin was right on the money when he commented on this. In his Institutes, after discussing the nature of the Law of Moses, he concludes that the Law of Moses, if you look at it, is all about how we relate to other people. And how we relate to other people is an expression of our love for God. And here's what he says, this excellent quote, this excellent comment. Let us therefore hold that our life will be framed in the best accordance with the will of God and with the requirements of his law when it is in every respect most advantageous to our brethren. It's an interesting thought. Our life will be framed in best accordance with God's will when it is in every respect most advantageous to our brethren and that he, and that he leads the best and holiest life who as little as may be studies and lives for himself and that none lives worse and more unrighteously than he who studies and lives only for himself and seeks and thinks only of his own. It's hard to hear that, isn't it? Maybe you don't even agree. I agree with him that God's law is about love for others and living and thinking not of your own things only, but on the things of others. Those who live for themselves are those who live the most unrighteously. And this is a significant thing here in Galatians that Paul is saying, when you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, the fruit is love. Notice in verse 22, the very first fruit Paul mentions is love. You might wonder, when Paul's writing this, the fruit of the Spirit, you might think, what's the first one he's going he's gonna, to, what would be the first one that would come to his mind? All of them, of course, are the fruit of the Spirit. But what might he write first? And the first one he writes is love. I think that does show the, the preeminence here of love in the Christian life, the love in the ethical realm is the preeminent thing. Paul is showing the superiority of the gospel over the way of legalism and law. Legalism is self-focused. It always will produce people who are self-focused, navel gazers, because they're going to primarily be concerned about themselves. They're going to be primarily concerned about, am I right with God? Am I doing the right thing? Does God think I'm okay? The gospel frees you from that because you are right with God. Now you can look outward and start caring about other people because you're safe, because you're saved, because you're at peace and at rest. And so it's an ironic thing that even though the, the Judaizers here, the agitators are saying, no, no, if you guys want to be sanctified and justified, you need to follow the law. This is the way that you're going to be righteous before God. Paul's flipping on his, his head and saying, if you go down this way of the agitators, you're, you're going to go so far from the law, you're not going to be loving one another, you're going to end up biting and devouring one another. And ironically, it's by walking in grace and not by the law that will actually produce the fruit of love, which is what the law is all about. And Paul closes, uh, ends the list of the fruit of the Spirit by saying, against such things there is no law. Meaning the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of walking by the Spirit, walking in this new creation, walking in the, in the grace of God, realizing that you're righteous through faith alone and not by what you do, that's going to produce a life that the law doesn't condemn. As the theologian G. Walter Hansen comments, the Spirit-led life is not a life against the law. 
It is a life that fulfills the law, but the way to the fulfillment of the law is not to live under the law like slaves, but to live by the Spirit as children of God. Isn't that beautiful? He's saying, you guys are interested in fulfilling the law? Well, let me tell you how to do it. Don't live like slaves under the law. Live as the children of God. Live as those who have been accepted and who are loved and who are righteous and God delights in them through Christ and not by what you do. And you'll find yourself bearing the fruit of love. So the nature of the roots to the fruits here, we need to keep in mind, first of all, there's a cause and effect relationship. We start with the mindset and it produces different fruits, depending on where your mindset is. And then the other thing, let's remember that the fruit of the Spirit and the true ethical life is primarily a life of love focused on other people. And this will affect our communities and our relationships. Secondly, I'd like us to look at Paul's sober pronouncement in verse 21. So let's look at verse 21. And Paul says something here that's very serious and it's troubling to many. After listing the works of the flesh, the things that come out of having your mindset in the old creation, having your mindset on the law, and in legalism, he says this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a very sober pronouncement. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it almost sounds like Paul is going back on himself. And it almost sounds like he has forgotten everything that he's been talking about in this letter. Because everything he's been talking about in this letter is we are all guilty of sin and We are not righteous by obedience to God's law. We are not righteous by how we live and how we behave. We are righteous solely through faith in Christ. And when you put your faith in Christ, you are saved and you will inherit the kingdom of God. And now he seems to be saying, if you commit these sins, and that really should cause us all to be kind of bothered uh, if we understand this incorrectly, because how many of us can say that There are things in this list, if not everything on this list, that we do as Christians, right? Anyone have any enmities or strife with other people? Anyone have any sexual immorality or drunkenness or factions or idolatry? I think that if we were honest, we'd say, yeah, I mean, I see the works of the flesh in my life. I see these things creep up. And so, is Paul going back on himself? Is he saying, hey, if you behave this way, you're not going to make it. I know I said righteousness was through faith alone, not by what you do, but unfortunately, I have to tell you that it's not that great. (laughs) No, Paul is, is not going back on the gospel. That would be truly impossible for him to have forgotten what he has said just a page before. There's two ways that Christians interpret this passage or this pronouncement there's two ways and the first way is this yes those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of god that's true but 
we need to understand this. Real Christians don't do these things. So it's true, yes, you do these things, you'll inherit the kingdom of God. But real Christians don't do these things. We aren't saved by our works. We are saved through faith. But believing in the gospel changes your life so that you don't do these things. And if you do these things, it, it's an evidence that you don't believe. It's an evidence that you don't have faith. It reveals that you're lost, you see. So that's the first way this is interpreted. It reveals that you're lost. What that's saying is that Paul's simply saying that this here. If you see the works of the flesh in somebody's life, that's an evidence they don't have faith. And if they don't have faith, they're going to not inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe you've heard that before. I think there are three problems with this perspective, at least. First of all, this perspective places an unwarranted weight upon the word prasso in the Greek. In verse 21, in this pronouncement, he says that those who practice such things in, in the New American Standard, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word in the Greek is prasso, and it's argued that this word prasso, and it's translated in my Bible, practice, it means not if you do these things occasionally, not if you do these things once or twice, but if this is a consistent behavior in your life, if you practice these things consistently, if this marks your life, then it's an evidence that you don't really have faith. That's, that's what they get out of the word prasso there. It, it doesn't mean if you do these things at all. That would be, they would say, the word poieo in the Greek, which means do or make. And so it, Paul's not saying if you do any of these things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But if you practice these things on a regular basis and it marks your life regularly, then we can see, oh, you don't have faith and therefore you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But that puts an unwarranted weight upon that word prasso, which if you examine the word's usage in the New Testament is virtually indistinguishable from the word poieo. It just simply means you do these things. And some translations bear that, bear that out. So there isn't a sense here in the Greek of it marks your life. Paul is just simply saying, if you do these things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And that's troubling because that means none of us would be inheriting the kingdom of God. Because we all do these things. <laughs> Another problem with this is that this pronouncement doesn't seem to be talking about revealing whether we have faith or not, it seems to be saying that if you do these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Not if you do these things, it reveals that you don't have faith and therefore won't inherit the kingdom of God. Paul seems to be saying these things keep you out of the kingdom of God. Not they reveal you don't have faith, but they keep you out of the kingdom of God. People who do these things don't go into the kingdom because the kingdom is a place of righteousness. And then the third thing that's wrong with this is, I believe this view, while it is technically evangelical in that it maintains righteousness through faith alone, right? It's not saying we're saved by works. It says we're saved by faith, which will evidence itself in good behavior. I think this view tends towards works-based salvation. Because how many of you know that good works isn't an automatic thing in your life? True? 
Good works isn't an automatic thing. I, I know in my own experience, I believe in Christ for my salvation. I'm trusting in him for my righteousness and my eternal life. But I don't, I don't find in my own experience that good works is suddenly automatic because of that. I have to put a lot of effort into keeping my mind in the right place, choosing to forgive when someone sins against me, choosing to be diligent in, in, um, in doing good works and not sinning. And so because it's not automatic, you do end up working to live a life of good works. And therefore, this whole idea tends towards a works-based salvation. Because you read this, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I better not do these things. That's what you're thinking. You're not thinking, well, I have faith, so I won't do these things. You always have to get up in the morning and think, don't do these things or else you won't be saved. And so I find there's a problem there. So what is the other way that people interpret this or Christians interpret this? And the second way that we can interpret this is this. That this sober pronouncement about those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God is a true fact about the unrighteous. And Paul is bringing it up here as a motivation for the righteous not to do these things. And I'll explain. But it's a true fact. Those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a true fact about the unrighteous. And Paul's bringing it up here as a motivation for the righteous not to do these things. Or to paraphrase, Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, these, kind of be- these things, these behaviors, are what sends people to hell or keeps people out of God's kingdom. Don't do those things, therefore. They're bad. They're really, really bad things to do. Because this is what keeps people out of the kingdom of God. Now, you won't be kept out of the kingdom of God because you put your faith in Christ. But don't do these things because they do keep people out of the kingdom of God. Now, if this is the way it is to be interpreted, we can find... We, we can say that what Paul is saying here in Galatians 5 is identical to what he says in other places in the New Testament as well. So we can go to some other places where he says virtually that. 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3. And I'd like to just look at one of those this morning, and I think this will help draw out this point. Turn to Ephesians 5. It's just one book to your right. Ephesians chapter 5. And... and there's a parallel in these other places with Galatians 5. You'll see it immediately. Where Paul makes a very sober pronouncement, those who do these things will not enter the kingdom of God. He, he makes it perfectly clear. But you'll see his context. And look at uh, Ephesians, actually, chapter 4, verse 30. We'll start there. And he says this. He's talking about Christian behavior now. He's talking about how we should live our lives. And he says in verse 30 of chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So there's an encouraging comment and an exhortation. Hey, Christians, you are sealed, protected in the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Therefore, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He's not threatening you here, saying, you better do this or you won't enter the kingdom of God. He's saying, 
in view of the fact that you are holy and beloved, in view of the fact that you are sealed, in view of the fact that you are forgiven, put off, of, put off these things. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. He's not saying forgive so you can be forgiven. He's saying, hey, Christians, you've been forgiven. Therefore, forgive others, just as God forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, chapter 5, verse 1, as beloved children. So he's saying, you are his children. Imitate your father. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Verse 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed, let it not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. He's saying, you're a saint. It's not proper for saints to have sexual immorality and greed and things. Don't do those things. And filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So it's not fitting for us to be like that. Let's give thanks instead. Now look what he says in verse 5 and 6. This is like Galatians chapter 5. For... Now, I'm telling you to not do these things. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, seeking to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. I don't know if you're catching the flavor of this, but what he's saying is, you guys are the children of light. Therefore, walk as the children of light and don't partake in the wicked things of the children of darkness, the children who are not believers, the children who are still in darkness, the children who are going to not enter the kingdom of God. Because those things that they do, that's what sends them to eternal punishment. Therefore, don't do those things. So I don't, so I don't know if you see the flavor here, but he's not threatening the Christians. If you do these things, you won't enter the kingdom of God. He's just saying, these are the things that non-believers are going to be judged for. Don't partake with them, therefore, in those things, since you've been rescued out of all that. And you can see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6 and Colossians chapter 3. I believe this is what Paul's saying in Galatians chapter 5. He's making a sober pronouncement that these works of the flesh are what keep people out of the kingdom of God. But not doing the works of the flesh isn't what gets you into the kingdom of God. What gets you into the kingdom of God is faith in Christ. What keeps you out of the kingdom of God is these wicked things. And when you don't have faith in Christ, you're exposed to the judgment that rests upon them. There's a sober pronouncement here for anyone who's not trusty in Christ. If this morning you are not a Christian and you are not righteous through faith, this sober pronouncement needs to wake you up. Paul is saying that the sins that you commit and the sins that we as Christians commit too, these are the things that send people to hell and these are the things that God will judge. Everything may seem peachy keen and fine right now, 
but there's coming a day of judgment when God will judge the world in righteousness and people will perish for these sins. That's a sober pronouncement that you need to hear. And the simple way to be saved, we're not telling you this morning that the way to be saved is stop doing these things. We're saying the way to be saved is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And since those things send people to hell, let's not do these things as Christians. If you are a Christian this morning, we can rejoice that we are saved by grace and we don't have to rest our hope in our own behavior and our own works. But let's not do the things that send people to hell. Let's be thankful to God, rest in our hope, and face this life together, doing the good works that God has called us to. I'd like to just close this morning with the third point, which is Paul's concluding encouragement, concluding encouragement and exhortation in verse 24 and 25. So let's look at Galatians 5 once again, and we'll just close with 24 and 25. Verse 24, Paul says this. Now those who belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's an objective statement of fact for all Christians. Kind of a confusing statement, we'll talk about it in just a moment. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so here again, Paul is saying the same thing as I was just saying a moment ago, that if you are a Christian, you are not in the flesh and you are in the Spirit. That's an objective truth. If you're trusting in Christ, the old creation is gone and the new creation has come. Therefore, live in a new way. It doesn't follow that you're automatically going to live in a new way. You are in a new condition. You are in a new situation. And it doesn't automatically follow that you will walk according to that new condition. But objectively true of you, you're not in the flesh. Your flesh has been crucified with its passions and desires. Fact. And you are living in the Spirit. Fact. Therefore, walk according to the Spirit. The word walk here is actually a different word than has been used already in chapter 5. It's a word that means to keep up with to keep in step with. And so what he's saying is, you have a whole, you are a new creation. You have a totally new condition. Now in the way that you live, keep up with your new realm of existence. Keep up with the life that you have in the spirit. Keep in step with it. Don't live inconsistent with who you truly are in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying here in verse 24 and 25, he basically says the same thing in chapter 6, verse 14 and 6 to 16. Look there at chapter 6, verse 14. He says here, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it never be that I may boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because he just said, let's not become boastful in verse 26 of chapter 5. Walking according to the flesh is going to cause you to boast in who you are and what you've done and what other people have done. Walking according to the Spirit is about boasting in the cross and nothing else. Because the cross 
is the power of God that has saved us and not what we have done. He says in verse 14, what he says here in the next part of verse 14 is equivalent to what he says in verse 24 of chapter 5, where he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now he says, through the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. This is what the crucifixion of the flesh is all about. Objectively true of you if you're a Christian. The world that you see with your eyes, this age that's fallen and under the control of the devil, has been separated from you through Jesus Christ. You are not of this world. The world's been crucified to you, and you have been crucified to the world. Through the cross, through faith in Jesus, through you being united to it, you've made a break with the old creation, the flesh and its way of life. Verse 15 of chapter 6, For neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision. That's how the old creation thinks. What have you done? Have you kept the law? That doesn't matter. No one's going to be righteous through that. What's the only thing that matters in verse 15? The new creation. I've been separated from this world. The world's been separated from me. The old creation is gone. I realize now the only thing to boast in is Christ. I got nothing to boast in in and of myself and what I do. The only thing that matters now is the new creation. And verse 16, those who will walk, and that's the exact same word as in verse 25, those who will keep in step with this rule, the only thing that matters is the new creation. Peace and mercy be upon them. Walking by the Spirit Okay, we are new creations. Let's keep up with the new creation in our walk. Walking by the Spirit is equivalent to walking by this rule that what we do, circumcision, uncircumcision, keeping of the law, doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the new creation. Walking according to the rule of the new creation is walking according to the Spirit. Paul is not saying in verse 24, that the flesh isn't operative in this world and that it cannot affect you. That's not what he's saying. Because sometimes when you read verse 24, okay, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You might think, I don't understand. I wrestle with the flesh all the time. And didn't he just say a moment ago that we better not, we better walk by the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the desires of the flesh? So now is he, how is he saying that the flesh and I have nothing more to do? can be confusing. But Paul is not saying that the flesh isn't operative in the world and that it can't affect you. It can affect you. What he is saying that if you're a Christian, you have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to you and therefore the flesh need not affect you. It need not affect you because you've made a break with this old creation. Now, if you live according to the old creation, yes, you're going to be affected by the flesh and its desires but objectively you've been removed from the flesh and its desires and it need not affect you if you walk in the Spirit. Or in other words, as Paul said in chapter 1 of Galatians, we have been freed from the present evil age. True? We have been freed from the present evil age through Christ. We don't belong to the present evil age. And yet the evil age is present, isn't it? You open your eyes each morning and where, where do you find yourself? What do you find yourself looking at, I should say? the present evil age, and all of its desires and way of life is operative, yet we can choose to walk by it or we can choose to walk by the new creation because 
of what Jesus has done, there's a new possibility for us. There's a possibility for a new life because there's a new mindset, because there's a new existence through Jesus. Isn't that exciting? So this is what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 5. Not only does not only are we justified and made righteous before God through faith in Christ alone and not by what we do, but this gospel opens up a new possibility for our lives because we have a new existence in Christ that we can live according to. And the key to the Christian life is walking according to the Spirit. Yes, we need to learn what to do. Yes, we need to learn all the different reasons why we should do it. But we also need to know how to do it. And that is by first and foremost, getting the mindset of the new creation and walking according to that rule. So this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper together, we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. He came into the old creation, didn't he? And he took all of our sins and our old identity onto himself, and he died for it all. He died for our sins. He died for you to rescue you from the old creation that's under judgment and that has no hope. He did that for us. And it's through his death that we were rescued. It's through his cross that we were rescued. And it's in his resurrection that we who believe in him have new life. So as we take that, let's remember what he did for us. Let's remember that through his death, our sins are forgiven. But not only this, let's also remember that by means of his death, he has opened up for us a new way to live as new creations in this world. And since we're new creations, brothers and sisters, if that's true of us, if we're believers, I just want to exhort us also, as Paul exhorted the Galatians, let us walk as new creations, not envying, not bickering, not devouring one another, not thinking old thoughts and having old desires. That's just going to hurt our community. But let us serve one another in love. Let that mark our community as a community that has the mindset of the things above. Let us walk by the Spirit, and so produce the fruit of love for one another and walk in love towards one another, seeing what God has done for us. I think that's a good game plan for our lives. Let's pray. As we sang earlier, Lord, how can we tell of your goodness to us? Thank you for rescuing us from the old creation. Help us, Lord, to lift our eyes above the things that we see naturally to the things that are above in Christ Jesus. Help us to see, Lord, that we've been rescued from this age that's under judgment. And help us to see that each person here, Lord, who, is, who belongs to you is your delight and that we're satisfied and complete in him. Please transform us by the renewing of our minds, Lord. Please mark our communities by love. Please start with me here, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We love you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.